0: Welcome to a new conversation on the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Casey. When's the last time you updated the software on your phone? Probably not that long ago. You need to do so to keep things running. But the funny thing is, we often don't pay the same attention to some of our beliefs. We don't take the time to step back and examine them. And sometimes, as things have changed, they may not be serving us well. The title of Julia Keller's new book caught my attention right away. That's because perseverance is my default mode. But her book, Quitting, A Life Strategy, The Myth of Perseverance, and How the New Science of Giving Up Can Set You Free, made me stop and think beyond my initial visceral reaction. The book blends scientific research with real-life stories and makes you stop and think and come away thinking that grit and perseverance are not always the best option. It's good to have some variety in your toolkit. This conversation and her book can be very useful if you're thinking about when to retire and it may open up a new option for you, which she calls quasi-quitting. Julia Keller is a Pulitzer prize-winning journalist, novelist, playwright, and teacher. She has a PhD in English literature from The Ohio State University, has taught at Princeton University, the University of Chicago, and the University of Notre Dame. And she was a Neiman Fellow at Harvard University. She was a chief book critic and a staff writer at the Chicago Tribune for many years before quitting the world of daily journalism to write books. She was born and raised in West Virginia, the setting for her critically acclaimed mystery series, featuring Prosecutor Beltha Ekans. Julia, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, happy to be here.
0: So I mentioned before we started recording that I've always been a card-carrying member of the Perseverance cult in some way. But your book made me realize how perseverance can be misguided. How does, and I'm quoting you here, uncritical thinking about the power of perseverance make quitting difficult
1: to do. And I think we are all very much under the sway of this idea of grit, this idea of being gritty and persevering as an unalloyed good. Now, there's no question that sometimes it's great and sometimes it works out, but not always. A, I like to say it's a good servant, but a bad master. You don't want to always have grit and perseverance to be the only the only tool in your toolbox, that there are other ways to approach life and to get to where you want to go. But that's very much, very much against the common thinking, that grit is always celebrated and always generated. And you write about an idea of strategic quitting, and that's very intriguing to me. How would you explain it? After my book was already, I already had the proofs and everything. A friend of mine came along and said, who is who's in business, came along and said, well, you know, it seems to me that what you're talking about is precision quitting. And I said, darn it, that would be a terrific title. Because I think the title like quitting is sometimes misleading to people and they think I'm going to tell them how to quit smoking or drinking or overeating or bad habits. And it's like, no, 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 no. I have far too many bad habits to set myself up as as any kind of, of a guru of that. But I do think that strategic quitting, precision quitting, if you will, is exactly what I'm getting at, which is to take every moment of your life and every particular incident on a case-by-case basis, to not look at at grit and perseverance, again, as the only thing that you're able to do, and to take them all individually. There are times when a pause and a pivot is the best strategy, that not being gritty and not sticking with it is absolutely the best thing you can do. But in order to do that, as you and I will talk about in a bit, you have to overcome a lot of cultural messaging. I call it cultural baggage that that we live with all of our lives where we, we have to move through that somehow. And it takes a great deal of courage. Quitting takes courage. And that's something I always say to people. I'm, I'm, you know, I don't want anybody to be under any illusions and anybody past the age of 12 knows this already. Quitting something is very, very, very difficult. And it does take a lot of personal courage and a lot of intellectual courage as well. You have a lot of
0: references to neuroscience studies and research in the book. And I'm curious how
1: can pivoting to a new direction, help keep our brains sharp? As I point out in there, in my conversations with uh, many neuroscientists that I spoke with and some entomologists and evolutionary biologists, they all make one salient point about our brains. Our brains like to be active. Our brains like to stay in motion. The worst thing you can do for a brain, any brain, ours and anybody else's, is to have it just be sitting there not doing anything. Our brains like to be in motion. So I call quitting, we uh, say it's very much like aerobics for your brain. It's a way of keeping your brain active. When you change course, when you look at the path you're on and say, I don't I don't know, I think maybe I can do better. When you change course like that, you are forcing your brain to be engaged and your whole brain is engaged with even the smallest decision. We know that now that, that brains are, it's a, it's a whole brain activity, even the smallest thing that you do. And that keeps our brains engaged. And that in turn, keeps our brains active and healthy because an active brain is a happy brain, an active brain is a healthy brain. And so I found that your book really reframes quitting
0: in a powerful way, shifting from perseverance as you wrote to possibilities. And to me, it feels much healthier to think about making a course correction rather than quitting. Deciding when to retire can be challenging for many people. What signals should people look
1: for that might be helpful in deciding it's time to quit and move on? Yeah, you know, I'm glad you used that word signals, because I think that our bodies our minds, our spirits, our souls, if you will, do give us those signals. We all have them and we all we all know that they're there, but we allow ourselves to be distracted by this, as I mentioned, the cultural baggage of grit and perseverance. So when you find yourself maybe having moments of discontent, not the situation doesn't have to be terrible for you to want to leave it behind and go to another or even begin contemplating another. It doesn't have to be terrible and awful. I often say, doesn't have to be a Dickensian workhouse for you to decide that, uh, I don't know, maybe this Maybe I can, maybe I deserve something better. Something that's going to use my gifts and talents better. But we allow ourselves, as I said, to be distracted by these other things. But we do feel those signals. And one of the points I make in the book, as you know, is that in the animal kingdom, quitting is very much a survival strategy. Animals don't have the luxury of allowing these cultural messages about grit and perseverance to get in the way. An animal has two goals, as this wonderful entomologist I interviewed, actually, he, he died shortly after our interview, a very renowned entomologist named Dr. Justin Schmidt. He's written a wonderful book called The Sting of the Wild. So if you've ever been interested in a bee sting versus a wasp sting versus a hornet sting, he's your man. That book is it. But we had a wonderful conversation. And he pointed out that animals have two goals, to eat and to not be eaten. And actually, that's true of us as well. It really comes right down to that. So how do we do that? And one way we do that is to listen to the signals that are being sent. So to apply it to a human situation as opposed to a, as opposed to a honeybee, we feel that you know, in, within ourselves. We know is that when things aren't quite what they ought to be, maybe not terrible, but not what they ought to be. And if when it comes to, to job situations, what I think we can all do better, myself included, is to be more attentive to what our bodies and our minds and our spirits and our souls are telling us and try to get rid of the cultural baggage and not worry so much about how it's going to look. Because quitting has a lot of shame attached to it. It really does. I was aware of that in the situation I recount in the book. I quit my first try at graduate school. What kept me from just running and fleeing after the first month when it became very clear this was not the right situation for me. What kept me there though, through a lot of extra misery, was the notion of what will people say? What will people think? And I think those of us who've been fortunate enough to have good jobs, and I've had some very good jobs in in my life, and I've been very fortunate to have had jobs that really did initially work out very well, but then maybe not so well. But what keeps us in those jobs is that idea of like, what are people going to say? I don't have another job lined up. Same thing with relationships. And again, I come back to this theory of abundance. That one thing you can do in listening to your own heart and mind is to try to Keep an idea of abundance in your mind as well, and an idea of hopefulness, and an idea of there can be something better. I deserve something better. We all deserve something better. So even if it's not terrible, if it's just not wonderful, you deserve wonderful. And that's in a job, a relationship, a living situation, a political philosophy, a religious belief. We all deserve the very best that we can possibly achieve. You point out in the book that quitting
0: isn't always an all or nothing decision. Why is quasi quitting an interesting alternative to explore?
1: I coined that phrase, and unfortunately, I coined it right after quiet quitting became a thing. You know, I was still writing the book, and I was afraid, oh no, now people are people going to get confused because they're both alliterative phrases. But of course, quiet quitting is completely different. To me, that's just thievery. That just means that you're that you're getting paid for a job you're not doing and you're trying to slide around so the boss won't notice that you're asleep at your desk, which seems like that seems like a kind of a death in life to me, you know, not not doing the best job you can. But quasi quitting is something different. I think of it as a rheostat dial, like on the for a lighting system, you can either have a toggle switch up or down on or off. But I much prefer the idea of a rheostat dial quasi quitting, you don't have to quit everything all at once, you can change your situation in increments. And small gradations, and see if you can't make it closer to your own liking. I give some examples in the book of I think some athletes have done that. They change their situation. They don't change everything. They might change their method of doing something. You know, I've read, read about a lot of great athletes that talk about as they get older, their strategies for doing their sport and for excelling at their sport has to change. Their bodies have changed. They're older, so they have to change their strategy. And we can all do that. We don't have to quit everything all at once, but we can make small, minute adjustments.
0: I think that's appealing to many people in thinking about retirement, the idea of semi-retirement, phase retirement, these concepts are gaining more traction. And sometimes I think they can be overlooked, but they're really powerful alternatives to consider.
1: Yes. It's almost like when you think of like a hybrid car, you don't have to go completely electric or stay completely with the old gas guzzle. You can have a hybrid. And that's that's the same thing with a job situation or a life situation. You can adjust it to make it to how you want it to be. I think actually that hybrid word is a wonderful one. And I'm so glad that that's gained a a lot of acceptance in our world today, that people now see it. You go to a boss, you go to a supervisor and say, let's work this out. Let's, I think in the wake of the pandemic, we see that too in a lot of work situations. A lot of bosses say, okay, everybody comes back to work. And you say, well, but let me craft and cobble this to make it more to my liking and more to yours. Here's why it's going to work out for you. Here's why it's going to work out for me. But let's work on this. Let's make the job itself a creative project. And for many of us,
0: as we get older, flexibility is very valuable and very important. And it gives a way to try to create more of that on your own terms.
1: Yes, flexibility in jobs and in limbs. I've discovered, yes, right. Uh, Balance and flexibility. I I find these analogs to the physical world actually be quite true. I mean, we have to work harder at it, but we can all feel also when we're losing a little bit of it too. And we know we need to kind of readjust ourselves and, and recalibrate our bodies as well as our spirits. So you mentioned your experience,
0: first experience in grad school, which culminated in you ultimately later getting your Ph.D. at Ohio State. But I was wondering if you could also share another personal experience where quitting turned out to be the right choice for you, even though it may have been difficult in the moment.
1: Like everybody, there are jobs that I have quit. And when I look back, the, the jobs that I quit when I was younger My main regret wasn't the quitting of the job, but the way that I did it, you know, when you're young, you're kind of heedless and sometimes even a bit rude. I mean, I would never quit a job now without giving adequate notice, but I did that a couple of times. I mean, maybe we're allowed to do that. (laughs) Maybe we're allowed to do it when we're young. A few times we get a, then we get a mulligan. It's like, all right, try that again. And let's do it a little better, a little more with a little more maturity and a little more responsibility. But other than jobs and relationships, I also always want to emphasize that when I speak of quitting, I don't just mean jobs and relationships. Those are the easy ones. Your profession, your marriage, your friendships. There are other kinds of quitting that we do that certainly I've been glad about. Politically, I have changed completely. And as I, you know, I don't, it doesn't really matter from what to what, nobody cares, but except me. But I will say that it was difficult. And now I look back and I see what I used to think and here I am now. And I would hope that I would even perhaps change back another time. I mean, I love that notion of always being in motion. We know that being in motion is much preferable to being sedentary. So for me, it's been political philosophy, but probably the number one thing that I have changed, and and that I'm very glad that I have, and I'm very grateful for having the opportunity to do so. I come from sort of a cynical family, and that sounds kind of, but there's a kind of a, oh, I don't know, this idea that cynicism is equated with being smart, That if you're too happy and optimistic and goofy almost, it means that you must be stupid. So I've had to really, really kind of fight my way through the thicket of that thinking because I don't think it serves you at all. I don't think there's anything goofy or silly about being optimistic. In fact, I think it's the only way to live. So for me, the the biggest thing I've had to quit is this idea somehow that there isn't an abundance out there, that there's only a limited amount of everything. And if you get it, Joe, I'm not gonna get it. It's like this, that that zero-sum game. And it's a very kind of insidiously appealing philosophy. That's the thing that I've quit as an adult that I'm probably most proud of and I think has definitely made the biggest difference in my life.
0: Totally different mindset. And the other mindset really fuels kind of a competitive view and an aggressive view and may lead from moving from something
1: like critical thinking, which is positive, to cynicism, which maybe takes it too far. Exactly right. And and certainly. Competition is great. I love competition. I mean, no one who enjoys sports can say they don't like competition. And I love good, healthy, fair competition. But in the end, all the cliches end up being true. Maybe that's what life is. You work your way into realizing every cliche is true. In the end, the only real competition is with yourself. Are you better today than you were yesterday, ultimately? And so that's what we're able to do when we believe in this theory of abundance. And that's, someone said, what's the ultimate goal You know, I I want for this book? It would be to eliminate that shame or any kind of a cringing embarrassment in having quitting something, and instead look upon quitting as not what you're rejecting or leaving behind, but what you are embracing. I personally
0: enjoyed a lot of these sports references, and examples you had in the book. You had an interesting one about Scotty Pippen included in there.
1: Yes, he got that, he the unfortunate moniker of quitting Pippen because in one game he had a little fit of peak. I mean, so did Thurman Thomas, Buffalo Bills, great running back. We all remember the famous Super Bowl when he just basically sulked. And end up maybe costing them the game. There are all these examples we have of athletes, I think, because one of the great things about sports is it's this brightly lit arena in which we can see everything about life kind of played out in front of us. I love the line in uh, Joyce Carol Oates novel when she says, boxing is life speeded up. And regardless of which sport you name, it really is true. We see it all in there. We see, we see uh, brutality and comradeship and cooperation and individuality, selfishness community we see it all and it's it's all right there in front of us so that's why I think sports are a great example of this and we see how athletes have to recalibrate it's funny when you're an athlete and you retire and put that in air quotes you might be 22 years old and then you've got to figure out what to do afterwards so if you think of it that's another way sports is a great kind of a, an arena in which to see some of these things that in the lives of those of us who aren't professional athletes play out because you have to decide what to do after the retirement what do you do when you have to completely change your life? And you still have plenty left in the tank.
0: Is there anything that through the process of the book and the research you did, all the interviews you did, one thing that really surprised you that you didn't
1: know about quitting? Oh, absolutely. I had no idea. When I went and started interviewing, I interviewed 150, 200 people for the book from, from research scientists to just regular people, ordinary people to find out their quitting stories because everyone has one. What completely astonished me was the fact that the vast preponderance of people had greater regret for the things that they didn't quit, but felt they should have, than for the things they did. I was quite certain that I would hear a lot of stories about, oh, if I, if I just hadn't quit this particular job or that schooling or that relationship, not at all, not at all. For the vast, vast, vast number of people, it was, I stayed too long. I wished I had listened to the signals. I wished I had Listen to my own heart and mind. And I wish I had made that change earlier. I feel I wasted some time, but I was afraid. I was afraid. There were a few times in the book, right from
0: the get go, where you mentioned the word love. Well, one last question How can
1: quitting be an act of love, even if it breaks someone else's heart? Yes. You know, I was referring specifically in that to maybe leaving a relationship, but also, you know, kids who maybe are on a sports team and decide they don't want to do it anymore. You go to your parent and you say, I don't want to do this anymore. And it can be a a terrible moment. It can be a a heartbreaking moment. The parent goes, wait, we've gotten in the minivan every week and every Saturday. And we follow you around all your meets and all of your tournaments. And, And the kid says, it's not for me. So what I was trying to get at there is that quitting has a very emotional component because we are all parts of other universes, not just ourselves. We have families, we have our spouses, our partners, we have our our sisters and brothers, we have our parents, our own children. So we have all these other people who are involved in our lives. And so when we make these quitting decisions, there are a lot of other people whose lives are on the line as well. So I interviewed a lot of parents about what it feels like when the kid says, I don't want to play, I don't want to be on the soccer team anymore. I don't want to play the clarinet, please spare me. And what do you do? You want the kid to, you want a resilient kid. You want your children to grow up with a lot of grit, But on the other hand, if you have those conversations and you can, you know, you sense the kid is they're not just they don't want to sit home watching YouTube videos. They really this just isn't working for them and they feel that inside. So the quitting conversation can be a great arena for the really serious, deep conversation about what we want out of life and how much you should put into something. And when you feel that it isn't the right thing, how do you act upon that? Or maybe not. Maybe they should stick with it. Certainly there are times when resilience and quitting with something. There are times when grit is good, just not every time. So, And in terms of our own selves, it is an act of self-love. It's a way of saying there is an abundance out there. I deserve it. We all deserve it. And there's no such thing as settling for something. Life is so short and it is so filled with uncertainty. And certainly bad things happen to us all the time that we can't control. But quitting gives us back some of that control and says, yes, but we get to decide how we spend our time, where we put our hearts and minds and efforts, and whether we're 80 or whether we're 18, those are decisions that we all have within our hands. Thank you so much for
0: sharing your insights with us. I think this is a very important book, certainly in the work that I do. I see all the things that you're, that you're talking about. I think it's going to be very helpful to many people. Oh, thank you. This has been a really delightful conversation. Time for takeaways, some ideas that may help you take some action following this conversation today. Number one, know when to hold them, know when to fold them. I don't think I've ever quite quoted Kenny Rogers before in the podcast, but I think the key is grit and perseverance are valuable traits, valuable things, but they're not always the answer. So look at where strategic quitting, precision quitting may be wise for you to consider. Know when to hold them, know when to fold them. Number two, keep your brain moving. There is a ton of rich neuroscience research in this book, and it's hard to do it justice in this quick takeaway segment. But the point about keeping your brain moving, keep looking for novelty, keep experimenting and experiencing the new, keep looking forward is wise advice. It opens up new possibilities and it's good for our brains. Number three, it's not all or nothing. Consider quasi-quitting. If you're thinking about retirement, take a look at what could be some other options. Phase retirement, which is a more gradual approach and more and more companies are exploring it, if not in terms of formal programs, also in terms of one-on-one arrangements that could be negotiated. So explore phase retirement. The other is semi-retirement. You don't have to retire all at once. Is there a way you could keep working, but more on your own terms? Thanks for listening to Retirement Wisdom Podcast. Our goal is to help you retire smarter by considering the aspects of retirement beyond your money. And that's how do you really invest your time and build the life that you want.